past president of the Medical Society. I'm excited to introduce a new format for our podcast where physicians interview physicians about their life, their practice, and their passions. The goal is to showcase the many physicians who inspire us. We want to celebrate the depth and diversity of practices that make our Wisconsin physician community unique. Today I have the great pleasure to talk with Dr. Joshua Mesrich. Dr. Mesrich is an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin and he is a transplant surgeon. He's the surgical director of the Living Donor Kidney Program. He also runs an active NIH-funded basic science laboratory examining the role of environmental factors in the acquired immune system and transplant outcomes, including pollution, diet, and the microbiome. In January of 2019, Dr. Mesrich published his first book, When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon. It is a fantastic book about the history of transplant surgery and Dr. Mesrich's experience as a transplant surgeon. I can't remember how I stumbled upon the book, possibly via my Audible book account where it gets five stars, but I loved it. As a fan, I'm really excited to be able to talk to Dr. Mesrich here on the podcast. Dr. Mesrich, thank you so much for coming. It's great to be here. So the first question I want to ask is just sort of a general question up about the book, which is uh, the way I kind of characterized it in my mind is that it's like a, a love letter to transplant <laughs> surgery. And I was just wondering what your description would be of the book. Yeah, I mean, I um, the love letter sounds pretty strong. I suppose love, hate maybe. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I do think it is an amazing discipline, an amazing career. And I feel it's one of these special areas of medicine where uh, not only do we have these sick patients that we take care of, but we have these donors. And these donors are, to me, so heroic, And whether we're talking about living or deceased donors. And I think that's a really unique part of transplant and a, a story that maybe people don't talk about enough. I also think transplant's really this story of innovation. It's a very new field. It really wasn't until the 1980s that it became a predictable, repeatable uh, option for patients and I knew that a lot of the pioneers were still alive so the idea of being able to tell the story to talk to some of the pioneers to talk about our patients and the donors it does show my passion for the field because there's so much there and it is really a beautiful thing to be a part of that yeah um, it m- makes me think of what I learned about the history of psychiatry when mm. I was in residency in medical school, and actually not so much in residency or medical school, but I was a psychology major as an undergrad mm-hmm. where we learned a lot more. But I'm curious about what kind of education residents get about the history of transplant and whether you question them or quiz them mm-hmm. about things over the operating table. Do you expect them to understand legacy? Yeah, I mean, I love the history and the legacy, and I'm always talking about it and quizzing them. I have to tell you, when I first got interested in transplant, I didn't know much about the history, although in general, I love history. And I was in the lab, and people were talking about this guy, Sir Peter Medawar, who had won the Nobel Prize in 1940, but I didn't know much about him. And people would talk about him as the father of transplant. And I knew he was some sort of a zoologist and an immunologist, and I always wondered, like, how could that be? And I was reading the book Emperor of All Maladies, uh, which is a book about cancer and the history of, of certain types of cancer, and um, I loved the book. I thought it was beautiful. But as I was reading it, I thought, I want to do this about transplant, and I want to really get on paper the history both what I could read in books, but as told by some of these people that were still alive. I thought it may be the last opportunity to talk to some of those people. And I hope that I could write it both for people in medicine and people outside so that they could really read about who these people were, what they were able to do, what kind of odds they were facing, Mm -hmm. um, how were they able to keep going forward with so many bad outcomes. So I hope it does preserve this history, and I hope it's a very honest history of the field. Were there stories that you discovered while you were writing and researching the book that you didn't know anything about beforehand? Yeah, I mean, I think there were there were a lot of things I discovered. I knew some stuff. I knew Tom Starzl had moved the needle massively in liver transplant. I knew Sir Roy Calm, who is still alive, um, had played this incredible role in cyclosporin. Um, I knew some of the cardiac history 
the stories of the heart surgeons are, of course, the craziest, as you would predict. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know all of those details. Like, for instance, I didn't know that Tom Starzl actually hated surgery. He hated doing it. He hated going to the operating room. It, it actually scared him. He couldn't interact with people before surgeries. And he ultimately wrote about that after the end of his surgical career. And I was able to spend a lot of time talking to him about that and trying to understand, is this true? Did you really feel that way? Why would you pick one of the hardest fields uh, if that's how you felt? And so that was quite a surprise. I was able to talk to Sir Roy Collin about his impressions of both Sarzel and of his own career. And he was totally different, totally unaffected by uh, the field. He loved it. Uh, he's an Englishman. He, uh, a uh, very, very positive person. So they, they came at it from very different angles. So th that was a big surprise. There were there are these incredible people that were involved in the field, but they each had their own type of coping mechanism. They were all different. So some would just kind of analyze the data. They were into the science of it. Some used humor. Some used alcohol. <laughs> some of them loved to operate. I think Starzl essentially had no coping mechanism. He had this incredible memory, and he just hammered through it like a bull in a china shop, but he had no coping mechanism and he could never forget anything. And I think that's part of why he struggled so much emotionally. You said that he retired right on his 65th birthday and that, that was right. the, yeah, I remember that part where that was not even a hard decision for him, right. even though at that time he must have been really kind of at the peak of his... Yeah, I mean, I, he had had some health problems. He did have a heart attack, was a big smoker, actually ended up living... To just a week before his 91st birthday. So it's sort of surprising since he had a heart surgery right right around where he retired. But he knew he wanted to stop. He, he was this incredibly driven man. And so he knew he wanted to get over the hump and make liver transplant a reality. And he didn't just want to do a successful operation, but he wanted to leave the field such that there were a bunch of people who could do it and could bring on that legacy. But once he did that, once he created this huge program and trained a bunch of people, I think he was pretty happy to get out of the field. Mm -hmm. He continued on research, but to get out of the, the operative portion. So you in the book are obviously speaking for, for yourself, but I'm wondering if you feel like you are expressing themes for all transplant mm -hmm. surgeons. Are you like representing the field or do you feel like your approach and ideas are unique the way you see it? I think it's a little of both. I think most people who go into transplant go in not just because they like doing surgery. If you just want to do surgery, there are probably easier ways to get into that. I think most people who go into transplant are either into the science of it, the immunology, or into many of the ethical issues we get to live every day and debate, you know, how do you allocate limited resources, who should get a transplant, should you be transplanting certain diseases. I think the field is filled with fascinating things like that. I think it attracts people who love innovation, who love pushing the limits, who know that the field is going to be moving in many ways. But I'll tell you, I've told this story before and it almost sounds cliched, but it really is true. When I went to medical school, I really didn't know anything about surgery, had had no exposure to it. I was a pretty cerebral person and figured I'd go into medicine, and I liked medicine quite a bit. But really what happened was my first day on my surgical rotation, I was scared. I showed up early, pre-rounded, rounded, then found out I was on call, was in the OR all day. At around 10 at night, I was in a bowel obstruction as the med student, and I remember almost passing out. I hadn't eaten or drank all day, and I was hanging on the patient and you know, sweating, and somehow got through it. And the resident, as the case, as we were closing, said, hey, go scrub in the room next door. And by now it's like two in the morning. And all I wanted to do was go home. I really was exhausted. But I went, and they were doing a kidney transplant. And I scrubbed in, and I remember Dr. Steubenbord was the surgeon, an older surgeon. And they had classical music playing, and the case went perfectly. And he you know, took out this kidney that had been in this other person who had just died. And they sewed it in. And when they re released the clamps, and it turned pink, and then urine started squirting out on our hands, I thought, this is so incredible. How can I? I need to see more of this. And I really wondered, like, could I ever do this? I definitely had this feeling that I was, that I kind of woke up to this idea, like, maybe I could actually do this. I was very aware that someone had just died to give this gift, and that was very powerful to me. And really from that day, I always knew I was going to do transplant.
I didn't know much about the immunology at that point. I found out a lot more about that later. But I think a lot of us in transplant get attracted in these very exciting ways. You know, it's adventurous. We go out on the donors. We interact on this line between life and death. Um, we're able to, you know, give give life from death, and uh, so that attracts a certain certain type of person. I remember um, I was assisting a family practice doctor removing a sebaceous cyst from somebody's neck, and I mm. passed out. <laughs> and that is why I'm a psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I always tell people I you can sort of back in back, a wheelchair, yeah. like. Oh. <laughs> I you can better. actually get used to all those things. But I got better after. Yeah, yeah I did get the better. The sebaceous cyst is the worst, though. So. <laughs> so have you received any critiques of the book or mm. input from other doctors? And I'm especially interested in kind of the difference between the way lay people might respond to mm. your book and the way physicians might respond to your book. Yes, um, it's good. Good question. So when I when I was planning to write the book, I wanted it to be really honest and really thorough, but I didn't want to write it just for people in the medical field. I personally, I love to read, and I love I try to read both fiction and nonfiction. But when I read nonfiction, I really like to learn what it's really like uh, to do what it, whatever it is is in the book. I love books that I feel like I get educated. I get this honest picture, and. Um, I've always loved reading books like Doris Kearns Goodwin's books or, or say, The Wright Brothers by McCullough, these books that write, you really feel like, okay, I, I get this. I, and so I wanted to write something like that, but I wanted um, people outside medicine to like it or at least learn from it. I had this wonderful editor, Gail Winston, who was a very uh, established, successful editor, and she was a won wonderful. And when I was worried about, mm, are people going to get this? Is this too detailed? She she would always say, "Listen, respect your reader. You know they're going to get it. Just you know you write it as as well as you can, and I'll help edit it. But but don't worry so much about that." And sh she was great through the whole process. I've gotten a lot of feedback from both physicians and other uh, caregivers as well as people outside, and it's all been different, but it's all been so great. So a lot of physicians thank me for being so honest. I. I never felt like it was hard to tell stories about mistakes I made or decisions I wish I had done differently or complications um, or how hard something might be. That's just the way I've always been. I'm very honest. I'm honest with my patients. I always develop a rapport where I, I tell them, you know, we're in this together and I'm going to work through this with you. And so to me, none of it was hard. But there were a number of surgeons in particular who felt impressed that I was willing to share so much. Yeah. A lot of people came to me and said it made them want to get back in the OR, get back to, to treating patients. I, I, my wife, who's, uh, you know, I have so much respect for, but I'm slightly afraid of. Uh, <laughs> not really, though, or a little bit. But she, um, I, I, my parents had read the book, and of course they loved it, but of course they were going to love it. And um, my brother likely didn't read it, but he said it was great. And he's a writer. And then I gave it to Gretchen, and I did, after like two days, I was like, well, what do you think? And she's like, I haven't read it yet. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> um, she's pretty busy. But anyways, after she read it, she came to me and said it's, she thought it was beautiful. And she also said it really made me want to get back in the operating room. And I felt really good about that because I wanted to be honest about the hard things about the job, the things that challenge me, the times where I've questioned, you know, would I do it again? Would I want my kids to do it? but also about the victories, the successes, the thing that ultimately makes it this incredible challenge, but also this incredible mission. And so I feel that made me feel like I got the balance right. Mm -hmm. The best thing about the book has been that every single day I'm getting emails and letters from people out there, and I made a file. It's got thousands of notes in it from just people who have no connection from um, people who received organs, people who had a family member that donated, living or deceased, and they've just wanted to tell me their story. They've just wanted to reach out and say how it's touched them, um, to comment on different parts of it. And the stories are so great. I want to share them with people. They're really amazing. But at least for now, it's been so great for me to get that. And I've responded to every single one of them, actually. Oh my my brother tells me don't admit that because he says you'll keep getting more. Uh -huh. <laughs> but uh, that's been really wonderful. And um, you know, overall, the response has been incredibly positive. A very, f very few negative comments, which uh, 
which is great, I guess. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, it's a great book. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's what my mom said. So It is a great book. <laughs> no, uh, I actually uh, can't remember how I stumbled on it. It uh-huh. wasn't like I was anyone recommended it to me because I work here, or live mm. here, or anything like that. I think what happened was I'm constantly surfing through my Audible feed, mm. and it came up because it's related to other books that right. I liked, right? So then I listen, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then partway through, I started to recognize people that I know. Right. So that was really exciting, right. too. Yeah, but I, a uh, real page turner. I, I loved it. Oh, thank put you. it down. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I listened to a couple other interviews that you did, mm-hmm. and when you did the Fresh Air interview, it seemed like a lot of what they wanted to know was more about, like, the stories and the people in the book. But when I read the book and then thought I'd get to talk to you, I'm just, like, so interested in who is this guy and how mm-hmm. does he write a book? Well, he's a transplant mm-hmm. surgeon. That's, like, this book that, you know, isn't a, a research text or whatever, you know, that it's more of a popular book that anybody could read maybe you could tell talk a little bit about like what prompted you to be a writer Mm. because you're a writer and you'd written some other articles and that sort of thing too but it's a big thing to to decide to write a book especially at the height of your career as a surgeon right it it was a huge effort but it was so incredibly wonderful and I'll talk about that I I grew up in a family of books I always read avidly Um, When I was a kid, and I have two brothers, my parents would make us all read two books a week, and they would read them as well, and we'd talk about them. And my brother Ben, who's a writer, would fly through books so quickly, whereas I took a lot longer. But we all ended up loving reading, and we still to this day share books and topics, and I try to always have a book going and try to do that more than some of the other things that (laughs) pulls my attention, like flying through Twitter or something like that. But I try to... I try to read as much as I can. My brother has had this incredible career in writing. I think his 20th book just came out. And I've always been close to Ben and have watched his career and have learned about writing and met many of his friends. And I've always known I was going to write at least one book. Now I hope to write more of them. I wasn't sure what that book was going to be. I got into writing some articles because I wanted to learn a little bit about that. I. Of course, I'd read other uh, medical writers. Uh, obviously, everyone's read Atul Gawande um, and then Mukherjee, who wrote um, Emperor of All Maladies. I also loved the book uh, Do No Harm by a British neurosurgeon. That, that was really incredible. And, uh, and a bunch of other books, When Breath Becomes There. I, I could go on forever. And I started to form these ideas about what I might write about. I started with some articles because I wanted to figure out my voice a little bit to understand what it was like to interview patients and try and write that to work with editors. So I had the opportunity to write a few things for The Atlantic. And then when I stumbled on this particular topic after reading Emperor of All Maladies and combining the history with my own coming of age and my patients, I kind of knew, okay, this is going to be my first book. I do recommend if someone out there wants to write a book, it's not a bad idea to have a brother who's a best-selling writer. Like, that's helpful. So that may be the easiest first step. (laughs) I think a sister or a parent would be fine as well. But um, Ben helped me in a few different ways, but probably the biggest way was helping me get an agent. And it turns out with nonfiction, typically you you sell a proposal as opposed to writing the whole book and then trying to sell it. That's totally different than fiction, but... But nonfiction and fiction are as different as maybe surgery and psychiatry. They're totally different fields. But I was able to get this wonderful agent, and he and I spent a year working on the proposal. I had I had uh, I talked to him on the phone. I had briefly told him what it was I wanted to write. He said that sounds great. We usually start with a proposal. Why don't you Why don't you write about a ten-page proposal, just kind of going through what you think the chapters will be? And my first proposal was titled "The Legend of Big Daddy." <laughs> that's what they call me in the OR, but that's another story. But um, I want to hear that. Yeah, Sorry. it's actually really great. But he called me and said, no, we're not doing this. <laughs> so then we spent a year back and forth uh, working on the proposal. And we ended up at the end of a year with a, a about a 50-page proposal or treatment. That's what, that's what we call it in the biz. <laughs> treatment. A, a treatment that, that really kind of showed my writing style, talked in each chapter what we were really going to write about and ultimately sold that and then got my editor, Gail Winston. And 
then I spent a year writing the first draft and then a year on the edits. But I got to tell you, like, it was an incredible amount of work and I loved every second of it except the copy edit, which sucks. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that's at the end when it's fully written, then you go through like with a fine tooth comb over two weeks with someone you don't know. But other than that, I loved it. And it was really an obsession. I literally could not wait to get out of bed at four in the morning or 4.30 in the morning. I would run downstairs and write till about 6.30. Then we'd get the kids up and get them off. And then every weekend I would write from six in the morning until seven at night. Every vacation I would write in between cases or after cases if I had time. I couldn't wait to do it. It was so exciting. I. I would be sitting in the corner over my laptop and my wife would be looking at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I can't, I can't talk. I was really obsessed and I, I just, I enjoyed it. I knew the stories were incredible. I was just enjoying trying to get the words out. Ben gave me three pieces of advice that I want to share because they were great for me. They may not work for everyone. The first thing Ben said was, when you go to write the book, just write. Don't worry if it's any good, just write. Because he said the number one reason people don't finish their first book is they get held up, they can't make it perfect, and they never write it. So he's like, just write, don't even think about it. And the second thing he said was, um, when you finish writing during at the end of a day or the end of a session, don't ever stop at the end of a chapter or the end of a story, because the hardest thing is then when you sit back down to write, you, you can't get going again. You start surfing the web, you go watch TV, whatever, answering emails. But, it, but he said, once you get going, you just get rolling. And so if you're in the middle of a story or even in the middle of a sentence, you know, you'll just start going and next thing you know, you'll be going. And those two things worked incredibly for me. The third thing he said, which I personally didn't use, he, I mean, he's a professional writer, that's what he does for a living. So he has it that he has to write a certain number of pages a day. And if he does them really quick, he stops for the day. If he can't get them done, he just keeps going until he gets them done. I was so obsessed that I, did not need that. And in fact, it's kind of funny because when I wrote the first draft, I was so into it that a year went by and I was writing like a maniac. And then I looked down and I'm like, this is really long. <laughs> and I said, Ben, how long is a book? <laughs> and Ben said, because you know, the page, you can't really tell. And Ben said, well, we do it by words. The average book is 60 to 120,000 words. How long is yours? And I, I was embarrassed to tell him that mine was 300,000 <laughs> words. Oh my gosh. So it was like longer than the Bible, I think. But uh, <laughs> so I spent a year edit, editing it down to what ended up being a, a, about 100,000 words or so. But I loved it. I was obsessed with it. I've kind of approached most things in my life like this. Like maybe some people become an expert at something and then just don't want to stay that way forever. Or maybe some people like to have a lot of things going on at once. But I've always been someone who gets obsessed with something, want to master it. And then I do start to think, okay, I, I got that. Like, I want to I want to try something new. I had this approach to my, I have a basic science lab, and it's not the best thing to do for a basic science lab to write a book. <laughs> right. But, like, I was I was as obsessed with that when I first started working on that, and I, and I had this same kind of just obsession, love, passion for the book. I still have it, by the way, so I'm definitely going to do another one. I don't know if I'll do 10, but I definitely will do another one. And so, you know, it never felt like work. It never, it never was that feeling like, oh, it's going to be so much. I just couldn't get enough of it. I was quite sad when I, when I finished it. Oh. So a lot of physicians have aspirations outside of medicine or adjacent to medicine. When we apply for medical school, we are supposed to present as somebody who's really well-rounded that has interests outside of medicine. And so I think a lot of physicians are talented musicians or artists or mm -hmm. poets or athletes or or whatever and then we get into medicine and I think a lot of for a lot of people it kind of goes away I'm just wondering if you have any like specific thoughts or advice or anything about that how do we how do we get back that diverse world that we started out with uh, yeah that's a really interesting question I I totally agree with that. I mean, for myself, I was a Russian language and literature major. I love to read. I love to run. I like to sit around and watch TV with friends, all these other things. And then you get into your training and you work so hard. And it is true that during training, particularly during residency, whatever it is you do, it's really hard to balance at all, right? I mean, you're pretty much working and 
sleeping and maybe interacting with a loved one or something like that. So it's really hard to have balance, I think. I do think once you get out on the other end, I'm not sure what the right answer is during training. I hope people can keep some balance during training. You're not going to be able to play golf every day or be the greatest athlete in whatever sport you play or write a book during residency. I don't see that. But hopefully you can keep some element of life outside. But I think once the training ends, it's really important to try and figure out how to be able to live in the moment outside of your field, outside of you know the healthcare piece, to really be able to be there and be present and to be able to do some things for yourself. And that's really hard. I've always said you can do three things. This is what I think. You can do three things. You can do your clinical job. You can do your family, <laughs> and then you can kind of do one other thing. And it's hard to do more than that if you're going to do it well. You know, so at one period maybe it's lab, at one period maybe it's the book. But like how do, you, how do you fit the other things in there? It's really tough, especially if you, well, if you have kids, if you have some other big interest. It's really a challenge. But I think the most important thing is to be able to, when you come home, to somehow be able to, you know, stop your mind from spinning, to still care about your patients, but maybe like push that out for a little bit and really be there. And I still struggle with that, I'll be honest. When I have a patient that's sick, I'm constantly checking in with the fellows or checking on the computer, and, and it's, a, it's a struggle. Um, I don't have all the answers, but I think you know finding some way to do some physical activity, especially as you age. By the way, writing the book was like the worst thing for my back, so I've had to really yeah. <laughs> work hard to kind of get control of that but I, I think you just gotta you gotta be not feel guilty about taking a little time somehow outside of work to do things for yourself ideally to do things with a significant other if you can do that together and and have a little bit of that time you know it's important to have good partners we all try to like be so tough all the time and we can handle everything but like in our group you know if I'm fortunate I think working in Madison has been great but having good partners but I think it's okay to say look I need a little time here. I'm gonna go do this for myself. I'm gonna take this weekend off. I'm gonna go to my kids' thing. I'm I'm gonna run a marathon. Whatever it is, and you gotta, we gotta work together. You know, we gotta help each other. But it's not easy. I don't have easy answers. I just think that you gotta find a way to be able to pull out of your clinical job and do the, do some other things that made you who you were. Yeah. Not a perfect answer. No, it's it's a good answer. I think. So. I saw you give a Google talk and mm. looked it up and yes. watched that. And in that talk, you talked a lot about humor. Mm. And I know that in my career, the best psychiatrists I know are really, really funny. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of humor in your work. And also, I'm dying to know about the parts of <laughs> that were edited out because they were not yes yeah <laughs> so I, I humor is so important to me I love humor I love comedy I really want to be a comedian I'm actually working on a comedy show as well that I hope I can find a venue for but I, I just absolutely love it but it is how I approach everything I always try to get a balance between you know humor and honesty and I use it with my patients I use it in the operating room and I've always found it helps me connect Obviously, you have to be appropriate, but I, I think it, it's an incredible, it's fun. It gets people working together. When I'm in a stressful situation, I still always use humor, and I think I can do it without you know, losing focus. I think it's fun to be in my operating room, honestly, and I think the, the nursing staff, the techs, the residents love being in there with me, and I just think it's, the, it's a great way to manage stress, and I've always felt that way. And I do think it's a great way to deal with things that are getting you down, you know, things that aren't going well. So I've always kind of approached the world that way. Yeah, that when I wrote the first draft of the book, there were some hilarious stories. <laughs> and actually, when my Gail Winston, my editor, who's so great, I wrote three chapters and I, I said, Gail, should I send you these chapters? And she said, it's up to you. You can send me those or you can write the whole draft and send it to me. So I sent her those three chapters. The first chapter was this really funny story, which I could tell you if you have time. After like a few weeks, she wrote back to me and I was really nervous and it said, Josh, I enjoyed that first chapter, but 
trust me, I think we should cut the whole thing. <laughs> and she's like, I don't, I want you to connect with your readers and I fear that they're not gonna connect with you in the right way if you start with this. So I tried to fit in as much, as much humor as I could. And actually when I went to sell the book, I interviewed with six different publishers and each, each publisher, each imprint of a publisher has an editor. And I interviewed with six of them and all of them were really interested in this idea of the way I use humor even though I'm dealing with life, death, and even death and donors, and they just were really intrigued by this idea of humor kind of next to these topics, and they were all fascinated by it. Um, I just want to throw out to anyone who's listening, if you want to read an absolutely hilarious but wonderful book uh, by a, a comedian who, was a, who did uh, his training, it's a book by Adam Kay, who's a British, uh, he's actually a British comedian, but he did his training in OBGYN through the NHS, and his book is called This Is Going to Hurt. And it's an absolutely hilarious book. Um, you, you'll laugh out loud the whole time, but yet he's, even though it's ridiculous, he's, you still can tell he's compassionate and he gets the balance right. He ends up actually leaving the field at the end because of something bad that happens. And I don't wanna spoil it all, but it's just interesting that this guy, and he became a comedian actually, and he's done very well, but I highly recommend that. So my first story, that I started the book with and then it got cut. Hopefully it'll make it into some other. <laughs> so when I interviewed for medical school, I I was this really young guy. I mean, I was in college, but I just was sort of this immature guy, I guess. And I interviewed at Cornell Medical School in New York City, which is where I ended up going. And I, I was at Princeton University in New Jersey. So I took the train up. I stayed in, a friend of mine had a brownstone on the Upper East Side and his family, uh, his parents were away. So they gave me a key and it's this beautiful house. I went up, you know, in a flannel shirt with my backpack, hadn't shaved in like two weeks, was barely even using a real razor at that point. <laughs> and I get up there and I wake up in the morning and of course I got my blue blazer and my white shirt and my tan pants and I realized I didn't bring a, a razor. And I'm like, okay, I better, I better go shave. So uh, I step outside and I'm wearing my blazer and my shirt and my tan pants, but no tie. And the door closes and I realize I forgot the key. Everything is inside. And I have like $2 to my name. And so I run out to this grocery store and I'm able to buy a disposable razor, but I can't afford any shaving cream. <laughs> so I shave in this McDonald's bathroom and it looks good for about a second and then blood just starts pouring down because I never shave with a real razor. And it's getting all over my shirt. I'm holding pressure. People are knocking on the door, trying to come in. I'm in New York. And finally I realize I'm gonna be late to my interview. So I like run out, run completely in the wrong direction, ultimately get to Cornell about an hour late. This is from my medical school interview. I run into the room where everyone was supposed to meet and no one's there, but there's just an envelope on the table and it says Josh Mesrich on it. I'm like, okay, so I open it and it says first interview, 9.30 a.m. in room 210B. And it's already 10. <laughs> so I run to 210 and I see 210, but I notice there's no B. But the person inside says, Jeremy. And so I, I go in and I'm thinking, did she say Jeremy? And she said, Jeremy, it's, it's great to meet you. Uh, I was really excited reading, reading your resume. And I'm like, okay, great. And she said, so I see you really like to sing. And I was thinking, I do like to sing, but I don't know how she knows that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I really enjoy singing. It's something I've always enjoyed. And actually when I was in high school, I was in a band, but that wasn't on my resume. So <laughs> we start talking and she's like, I see you went to Canada and won this competition. And weirdly enough, when I was in high school, we did go to Canada, but <laughs> that also wasn't on my resume. So after about 15 minutes of completely creating this person that clearly wasn't me, I realized like, I got to get out of this room. <laughs> and I thought if I get out and I don't tell her my name, I can maybe salvage this. <laughs> so I suddenly stand up and she said, what are you doing? I said, I think I'm in the wrong room. And she's like, what, who are you? And I'm like, no, 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 don't worry about it. And I turn and open the door and there's this guy standing there. And I said, hey, Jeremy. And I just walked out <laughs> and went into the room next door. But I'll tell you, I just want to, the, the follow up to this, I've learned a second time, always, always, always correct your name or question that. So I, this, there is a follow-up story, which is that when I was a third-year medical student, I was on a service with uh, uh, the chief of surgery, John Daly, at Cornell. And we were all prepared for rounds, and he had this big group, and I started presenting a patient, and he said, that's a really great presentation. And then he said, Joel, let me ask you some questions. And I, in my mind, I'm like, did he say Joel? But I went with it. 
And I started answering all the questions and he kept saying Joel and I never corrected my name. So then I decided for the entire rotation I would just go by Joel, <laughs> which worked well until the last day he was running two rooms because back then people used to. And I was standing, we were doing an APR, a, a abdominal perineal resection, and I was standing between the legs and the chief resident was operating. And he looked in and I was leaning on the legs because I was so tired. And he yells, Joel, Joel, Joel. But I didn't respond because that's not my name. And the chief resident suddenly yells out, his name is Josh. <laughs> and I was like, no. And Daly, John Daly was this southerner who goes, now what kind of a man wouldn't correct his own name? <laughs> and so ever since then, I've always, always corrected my name. So, so that's you guys can edit those stories down. But oh, no. We're those keeping those. Those didn't yeah. make the book. I can't believe it. No, those are good stories. <laughs> One thing that I didn't ask you about is just the role of heroism. Mm. I think you've covered it a little bit, but, you know, I remember thinking in residency that I always wanted to work with the sickest patients and like in the ER and mm. people are violent and I still am in that. Mm. It's kind of like, an, I think of it as an adrenaline addict a little bit, but uh, it's just striking in your book how many heroic people there are. Like mm. the patients are heroic, the donors are heroic, the doctors are heroic. And what do you think, I guess, how do you react to that? Right. statement. I love that concept. I mean, I think all of us who take care of patients see the beauty of how many handle illness, handle a hand they may be dealt that who knows if we would handle it as well. And it, there are a lot of tough things about being a doc and we all know that, but it really is a privilege to be a part of that. And even sometimes when people maybe don't handle it well initially, often you get to as they they either come to grips with it or as they start feeling better and I think it is a big privilege for us to see that but it's hard for me to think of anyone more heroic than our donors and I think living and deceased donors but I really think of the donors uh, the living donors as people who run into the burning building to save someone they sure we can tell them the data the data is really good right the chance of dying is three in 10,000 if you're donating a kidney, say, and we do it laparoscopically, and the chance of kidney failure is less than 1%. You know, it's really good data. But none of that means anything when you sign up to get a major operation, you go under the knife, who knows what's gonna happen, and all these things could go wrong. I got the chance to talk to Nancy Asher, who uh, was, the, was the chairman of surgery at UCSF. She just stepped down, but she's also a transplant surgeon and a phenomenal surgeon. And she donated a kidney to her sister. And she didn't want to do it. I mean, how do you fit that into your life? Not to mention, like, what, what might happen. And no one knows the data better than Nancy. I mean, she, know, she does that operation. But she still described it as a leap of faith. She said, when it, when it comes down to it, you're putting your life into someone's hands. And you're not controlling it. You don't know what it's going to be like. And I, I love that concept. And I, I try not to talk too much with the statistics and numbers with patients because I think it, it gets very misleading, right? If you tell someone they have a 3 in 10,000 chance of dying or they have a 1% chance of this or even a 2%, they think that's never going to happen and it's not even conveying maybe what it is we want to say. So I like to talk about it more as, you know, we're going to take great care of you, but it is a leap of faith. It is running into the burning building to save someone. Most of our donors will say it is absolutely um, the best thing they've ever done. But part of that is because of this leap of faith, because of this unknown. I think the same thing about the deceased donors. When I uh, flew out the first time on a procurement as a fellow, and we got out there, I think it was in Green Bay or something like that, and we got there and the, and the uh, coordinator said, okay, let's go talk to the donor family. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't wanna do that. They're gonna look at me as this vulture, you know, coming to take their loved one's organs. Um, but it couldn't have been further from the truth. We went into the room, and there were about 15 people in there, different age groups, and they were all crying, but they loved talking to us. They hung on every word. They wanted to tell us about the donor. They wanted to know what we were going to do. Were people going to get transplanted now? Would they be from Wisconsin? You know, what, could they meet them? Um, they didn't want us to leave. And then when we go into the operating room, we always do a moment of silence, and then we say something about the donor, either a story that they share with us, a poem that they liked, a prayer, talk about a sports team they like to watch, whatever. If you're in Green Bay, of course, you talk about the Packers. <laughs> and you remember, like, 
this is someone giving this gift, giving this incredible uh, gift that's going to be their legacy. And so you remember, a really, really, you got to get it right and make you know do everything you can to make it happen. But you also remember how beautiful it is. And to me, it's very heroic still, whether you're living or a deceased donor. So I do love that part of our job. I think um, I, I write about this like in other areas of medicine, we try to prevent death. Maybe we try to give someone a good death, which is a great thing. Um, ultimately, we're all going to die, of course. But in transplant, we kind of start with death. You know, we we take from death. I, I love that concept. But the other thing I think about is, to me, it, and I wrote about this in the book, it really is like someone joining you in your illness. So like with a living donor, you know, you might be with a loved one in the hospital and you're there with them, but they're the one going through the test. They're the one that feel like crap. They're the one that might die. And your lives will go on and they'll miss all of that. And I think at least with transplant, it allows someone to come to them, whether it's a living donor or a deceased donor and say, I'm gonna, let me be sick with you. Let me, let me do this with you together and, and let's try, try and get through this together. And I, I find that to be this beautiful heroic concept and um, you know, what, what could be more amazing than that? I guess I see it that way. Yeah. So those are the real heroes. I mean, I do think the pioneers are these remarkable people and we stand on their shoulders, if you will, and they pushed through when no one thought it possible. And so that's heroic as well. But yeah, the donors are the most. That's how I see the it. And we can all be here. We can all yes. be donors. Yes. Um, we all, or well, at least many of us. Many of us. I shouldn't say all, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we can try. We can all try. Yeah. Yeah. One last question. The Medical Society and the AMA are really concerned about burnout. Mm -hmm. Um, it's one of the big focuses that uh, the society has. And part of why I wanted to have you here is because, to me, you seem kind of like the opposite of burnout. <laughs> like, you're so excited that you couldn't stop writing a book mm -hmm. about the wonderful career that you chose and how great it was. But I just wonder what your thoughts are about burnout mm -hmm. and if you have any, I don't know, yeah, any thoughts about it. Yeah, I mean, I... Um I have a lot of excitement and passion, but I'm not immune to burnout either. I've read a fair amount about it. I'm certainly not a world's expert. My wife and I have this great line that I don't know the data, so I feel I can speak freely. Um, <laughs> I know, I know some, I've read a lot about burnout, but I'm certainly not a world leader in it. But I think you know most people who talk about burnout think of the external causes and then the kind of personal or internal causes. And of course, they're both real and it's multifactorial. I, there are things I love about my job, but I have ups and downs. I definitely have times where the job stresses me out, where I get frustrated because it's so busy and I can't do other things, where, yeah, depersonalization, where, you know, we have a lot of bad outcomes in liver transplant, and I have to say, like, I'm able to manage some of those in a way that I wouldn't have been able to 10 years ago, and that's good and bad. I have frustrations. I think there are these external things that are really frustrating and obviously people write about the medical record. I'm a lot more protected from that in my area because of the structure of my job so the medical record is not a huge thing for me but I know for other people it can be a huge time sink. But there are all these other frustrations and they sh we need to address them as a group. I did just read this really cool article by Eric Topol in The New Yorker where he talked about how we all should, we really need to get together and kind of unionize and go after some of these problems. And I, I recommend that article. I think he's right. I think we, we can't have learned helplessness and, and let, you know, problems with healthcare persist without our input. I think more of the external effects for us are local, or at least for me, are local. And I have been fortunate to have a group that is really supportive and works together. And I think one of the things that is critical is to have a group where you support each other, where you can be honest with each other, where you can have bad days and tell people that. And if you don't have that, it's a problem. If you don't have a boss that can really support you and understand that, that's a real challenge. And partners as well. You know, the internal piece, the resilience piece, I think that's also very important. I think, obviously, you never want to say, like, it's people's own fault that they're getting burned out, right? But that said, everyone does need to think about the mindfulness piece. And for me, I've always been really good about picking my battles. So I don't get into fights or battles about things that I think ultimately 
aren't important. I'm not going to waste my mental energy on it. There's all these stupid things about the chart, but I just try to get through it as fast as I can. There's other parts of my day that I can't control, the OR delays, the clinic delays. I try to not waste mental energy on that. I'm very, we have great support in transplants, so I do get that we're fortunate. I try to remember that the patients are sick and they need us. I try to remember that every complication is like a puzzle, like rather than getting upset or frustrated or guilty, it's a puzzle that you need to solve. And some puzzles have a thousand pieces and some have a hundred pieces. Sometimes you need help doing a puzzle and sometimes you don't. Um, but if you can just be honest about it and work through it and be honest with the patients and tell them we're going to try and figure this out and I'm here with you, that's great. I make mistakes, I struggle with them, but I admit them. I have no problem telling patients and other docs that I did that and I've always been open about that. I don't try to prove I'm better or I'm worse. That's just not part of my deal. I, I know who I am and I'm confident with who I am. Um, and so I try to be really open about it. I try to reach out to people. It's a hard job though. I mean, that's the reality. Uh, it's hard. And maybe one of the most important things is to be really honest with yourself about what you want. I think a lot of us, we go into training and we put our heads down and work so hard and we never think about ourselves, right? Because it's really hard. And you get out on the other end and maybe there's some mentor that you're like, I kind of want to be like him or her. Or maybe you never even really thought about it. But I think it's important to be insightful and think like, is this really what I want? It doesn't matter that some people think if you are successful in research and successful in this and you're a triple threat, you're great. None of that, that's great if that's what you want. But if it's not really what you want, you need to be able to go after what you want. If you want to do big cases, do big cases. If you don't want to do them, that's fine. Your kids don't care if you're doing big operations or small operations. If the research, you know, real, if you don't wake up, this is what I like to say, like if you want to be a PI in a lab and have funding, whether it's basic science or health services or whatever you do, if you're not waking up like I want to go after this, like the same obsession that I had with writing, it's really going to be hard. It's really difficult. So you just got to be really honest with that. And the other piece is you got to give yourself room to change because we all change. I mean, what I wanted 10 years ago is totally different than what I want now. I do wish healthcare had more room for that. I think about my dad, who was an electrical engineer, and then he became a physician, and then he became a chairman. And what he loved about engineering is every time you became an expert on a project, like you then moved to a new project. And you had all these opportunities to really shift and change. And I think in healthcare, we need more of that. We need more of an ability to shift around um, to keep it fresh. I mean, those are just a bunch of different thoughts. I mean, I think we have the external factors which we need to attack as a group. I think there's all these challenges with how we are paying for healthcare, with the limitations of healthcare that can be really frustrating for all of us. At the basis, we have this beauty of people come to us who are sick and we try to either help them get better, help them understand why they're sick, help them have a better death. Whatever it is, that's just incredible. I mean, that's incredible, but it's so easy to lose sight of that or to have your day taken up by things that don't involve that. So the more you can really focus on those things, not worry about the other things. I'm not saying it's all solvable that way, um, but that is really what's special. And, you know, writing the book actually really revived my love of it. It actually really allowed me to relax and step back and think about what's really what is actually really great about being a physician and I just think the more you can step back and think about that but you know you got to be able to you got to be able to turn it off when you get home I mean I'm constantly trying to manage my guilt and my anxiety um, so like I wouldn't say I'm the opposite of burnout I would say I don't have this clinical diagnosis where I you know am, am emotionally exhausted and depersonalized and feel worthless but I think I struggle with each one of those at different points but I've I've been able to, you know, maintain this purpose. And and I'll just mention humor has been at the center of a lot of it as well. So that's a gamish of answers or of discussion points. No, I like those different aspects of talking about it. I just thought of a different mm. question, just like a follow-up question to that, which you can choose to answer or not. But if if your children came to you and said mm. that they wanted to be a doctor, what would you say? Yeah. What advice are you going to give them about it? So I love that question. I have to tell you, for a long time, I hoped they wouldn't. And I guess I would say, even though 
I'm not, I, have, I don't have any regrets about the choices I made. There are all these other great things in the world and we all gave up a lot to do this career. And if they got excited about being an architect or a businesswoman, I have two daughters or whatever it might be, a writer, a journalist, I think that's, that sounds wonderful. This is kind of funny. My older daughter, um, she started watching Grey's Anatomy, and I had watched the beginning of that show and then not, you know, thought it was kind of stupid and didn't watch it. But now I watch it with her, and it's actually been really great. There are a couple of things about it that are great. One, there are all these great women characters, women surgeons, that are actually portrayed in a great way. I think they've done a really great job of that, so I enjoy that. But... I mean, my daughter Sam and I will sit there and she'll ask me, like, all these, does it happen like that or what's that like? And the show is all about working as a team. So even though, you know, media has done some funny things with healthcare, it actually has been really fun watching it with her and then allowed us to talk a lot about healthcare. And, you know, I did feel pride about it and I could see her going into surgery and I think she'd be great at it. We do give out, up a lot, but we also get a lot. And... I'd like to still believe that medicine is going to remain a great field. We have some, you know, things we need to fight for in our career. But to be able to go into work every day and try and make people feel better, be less sick, have a better death, whatever, you know, whatever it is you're up to has to be better than going in and just trying to make money, I think. So I guess in the beginning I thought no, but now I think I would be proud of it. But I certainly wouldn't push it or force it. They have, you know, they have, it has to be in them. It has to be in them. Yes. I still want them to be, a, to, you know, to be happy and fulfilled. And um, I'll be proud of them, whatever, but it could be medicine. Yeah, great. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for coming. This was a lot of fun for me to talk with you. So thank you again for doing the podcast with us. I hope a bunch of people read your book because I really enjoyed it. And yeah. I'm trying to get my book club to read it. By oh, way. yes. Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about what lay people think about it yes. when I have them read it. That'd be there's great. there's no doctors in my book club. <laughs> yeah. Let me know. I'll try and come if you want. But, oh, uh, I've oh done my a few gosh. book clubs. But, that would be fun. Yeah. yeah, but no, it's been great to be on here, and I love talking about it. And I, these are great topics, and um, you know, I enjoy being part of this. So. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.